You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We're familiar with that quote, aren't we? I'll give you the reference, don't worry, so you don't have to keep thinking about it, trying to wonder where it came from. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, is a famous line from Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural speech in 1933. Prize to you if you remembered what it was. He sought to build strength in his hearers by saying this famous quote. Um, these, his hearers were, of course, dejected because of the crisis of the Great Depression. Here's the full quote. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt, though, was exaggerating. Not all fear is bad, but he was right to reveal lesser fears for what they are. Today's passage from Scripture deals directly with fear, fear of the Lord. And it is such a terrifying text that we would be tempted to pass over it. Instead, let's face this lesser fear together by digging in deeper to Scripture. As always, of course, we'll need the Lord to be the one to speak to us. So will you please pray with me now? Lord, have mercy upon us. As I preach your word, would you be the one to reveal yourself to us as you really are in all your sovereign holiness so that your mercy will taste all the sweeter? In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel 2 shows King David's two attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant from an obscure place into Israel's new capital. David abandons the first attempt after the sudden death of Uzzah and something changes that makes his second try stick. We'll look now at why Uzzah died and what changed to keep everyone safe the second time. Well, we read, if you have your passage in front of you, we'll read in verse 2, we see of 2 Samuel 6 about the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. If you remember, the ark was a box of wood, relatively small actually, that was covered in gold, and it had a special sculpture on the lid of the box in the shape of a seat right there in the center, or a chair, that was flanked by two angels, cherubim, with their outstretched wings pointing towards the seat. Inside the box was found the testimony of God's interaction with his people, literally the stone tablets of the covenant, the law itself. And they were contained there as a reminder of God's special revelation to his chosen people. God also spoke directly to Moses from above the box, from between the two cherubim, as if some part of him were resting on the sea. It was seen as being a physical place on earth where God would meet with his people. The ark was like a portable and renewable Mount Sinai. 
as a meeting place containing the stone tablets of God's word, the ark was a visible reminder that the Israelites worshipped a God who delighted to reveal himself to them, who delighted to be in relationship with them. Well, also, because the, the seat on the box was a kind of throne for the Lord, the, um, and the fact that the Lord was sovereign over all creation meant that the ark was not just this place of revelation, but it was also a kind of satellite or an outpost of God's sovereign rule and reign, his throne on earth, even as verse 2 says, enthroned between the cherubim. So all told, the ark was a sign, a symbol of God's presence, a physical representation of the spiritual reality of those attributes I've mentioned, his holiness, his desire to speak and reveal himself, and his majestic sovereignty. But the ark was so much more than just a mere sign, an arbitrary symbol. In fact, the ark was the place where God really was. He was actually present in some way there. And we see this again in our passage um, by the technical phrase that's used in verse 5. Before the Lord is used throughout the Old Testament to mean literally before the presence of the Lord God Almighty in his literal presence. And so 2 Samuel 6 finds this group of people, including David, um, doing something or thinking that they're doing something amazing for God by bringing the ark, by bringing God himself back into a central place in the life of Israel. But they haven't bothered to listen to God for what God wants. Turns out that God had given specific rules to Moses about how to worship him and how to transport the ark. Not just not definitely not so that he could create a kind of fussy piety carry it here carry it in this way do that exactly to this specification rather out of kindness the lord desired to protect the sinful human beings who were serving him from their destruction and so we could sum up god's instructions to moses in numbers four by saying don't look don't touch And definitely don't use a cart to carry the ark. So we see that they're breaking all these rules, right? Curtains were supposed to veil the ark even while it was being moved from one place to another and there were no curtains. While they were carrying the ark, even those lesser Levites that had that great honor of carrying the poles that the ark would rest upon, they were not even allowed to touch the box itself. All out of fear, a very real fear that they would die. When we look at this, we just, we pause, and I just think of one of my young nieces who would say in a deadpan voice whenever something was definitely scary, she would say, yikes, that's scary, just very calmly. But this is really scary. This is really alarming to think about this. Um, In his book, I love C.S. Lewis, and in his book, the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he makes a good point. Lewis is right to cast his Jesus or God figure as a lion. And two of the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, describe this lion to the four children who find themselves trapped in the magical land of Narnia. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And one of the girls says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, they reply. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Passages like 2 Samuel 6 remind us that God is good, but he is not necessarily safe. 
God's anger at unrighteousness comes from the fact that he's sovereign and holy. He is the king who has every right to execute justice. His holiness is powerful and pure. God's wrath is like a chemical reaction, a law of the universe of cause and effect, an unavoidable consequence to human sin. And so I had always thought that Uzzah maybe had good intentions in reaching out to stop the ark from falling. On the surface, this act seems respectful of the Lord. But again, looking at the text, scripture makes it clear. Verse 7 reads, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. Not just because of being a generally fallen human being, but because there in that moment, Uzzah has sinned. Perhaps Uzzah thinks that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, needs his help. He's brazenly fearless, isn't he? He's unaware of the law, or he underestimates the importance of obeying God's word of command. He is unaware, even after all this time that the ark has been in his home, he underestimates God's utter holiness and his utter sovereignty as Lord over all. And at the bottom line, Uzzah also underestimates the pervasiveness of his own sin. Even in his desire to help, Uzzah is wrong because he thinks that God actually needs his help. He perceives that somehow this good work of his to catch the ark will help God Almighty, Lord of all. Well, Martin Luther has a word to say about this. Uh, This is the problem when you send someone on sabbatical, they'll start quoting the Heidelberg Disputation. In Thesis 7, Luther argues that the work of the righteous would be mortal sins if they would not be feared feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. Essentially what that means is that as Christians, we're in danger of sinning through our own pride, even when we think that we're doing wonderful deeds, even good, righteous, holy deeds, obeying the law. All of that could be sin and is sin if through our pride we think we're helping God, unless, of course, we allow a holy fear of the Lord to humble us. Again, this is scary In light of this reality, we might find ourselves paralyzed. In our passage, King David is paralyzed by this. In his anger, in his fear, David distanced himself from the ark. He leaves it there outside of Jerusalem. There's some humility and repentance in this action, even while some self-preservation. How can the ark of the Lord come to me, he says. David recognizes that he is no better than Uzzah. He's guilty of the same kind of pride. David thought he was doing God a favor by bringing the ark to Jerusalem. What a good king was he. There's a time in my life, and I think all of you might know me well enough to know that I was an actor for a while, and when I was um, working on a professional acting career, I spent every waking hour thinking about theater and acting. I was in New York City, and I was taking a five-hour-long acting class from an 80-year-old guru acting teacher. I can't sit still for five hours to do anything. This shows how much I loved it. Um, whenever we would work on a character in class, our teacher would grill us. What is your motivation? Understanding the why of a character's action would, of course, make for a vivid and realistic portrayal. 
So during this period of my life, I was constantly acting, asking about the inner motivation of the characters I was playing. And I also turned inward, wondering about my own intentions. Here's a banal example. Why do I want to go shopping for clothes today? Always a good question to ask yourself, ladies especially, but also men. Is it because I feel mad or sad or lonely? We might save ourselves a lot of money if we ask that question. Here's a question for all of us this morning. Why come to church on Sunday? Is it because I want other people to see me? I have a new dress. I want to feel like a good person. I want to check the box and go on with my life and my day and my week. I want leverage with God. If I come to church, God, then you'll do this for me. We have all sorts of mixed motivation and negative motivation for doing the things that we do, even good things. So during this period of my life, I stopped doing some things because I realized that I was mostly doing them for selfish reasons. Um, even good things I was doing for selfish reasons. I would look at this, um, these multiple reasons as if they had different percentage points within a whole pie. And when I did that, soberly, I realized I never had 100% good intentions. None of us ever do, even for the best things that we do. So how can we possibly do anything? What would we do? How could we approach God too if our intentions are never 100% good, even when we're trying to do a good thing? What hope is there for us? Well, you know the answer to this. Our hope is the same as King David's hope. Our hope is, last, is grounded on the lasting character of this wonderful and fearful God of ours. As we say in our prayers, his property is always to have mercy. His anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Anger at sin ends when sin is no longer there. And one day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will no longer be sinful at all. Um, well, David could see that this property to always have mercy was manifested. It's manifested even in the construction of the ark. The throne that I mentioned, that seat on the lid of the box, was called the mercy seat. And the blood of sacrificed animals was thrown on that seat so that sinful Israelites could safely enter into the presence of a holy God. David saw God's mercy also in our passage in the way that he blessed the household of Obed-Edom, that random person um, who hosted the ark while David was trying to figure out what to do with it. Three months later, David brings it in, and David knows now that God is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David now has the fear of the Lord in a holy way. And so in verse 12, David tries to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and this time, with that humble fear of faith, believing that God's holiness is real, David trusts and follows God's instructions. We, we don't hear this explicitly, but the passage mentions that they stopped um, after carrying the ark for a few steps. It means they're carrying the ark. The Levites are carrying the ark the way they're supposed to instead of putting it on a cart. And there, after a few steps, they sacrifice animals. They hadn't done that before. Why? So that the blood will atone for any intentional or unintentional sins on the part of the worshipers. David knows now that God doesn't need his help. Instead, he desperately needs God's help, even in the moments where he thinks he's doing something good and righteous. 
David, and we need God's help. We need him to save us. We need him to atone for our perpetually mixed motivation and our even unintentional sins. Of course, we have a better, more permanent atonement than King David, a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus Christ is our great high priest who entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because Jesus bore the brunt of the wrath that was poured out on Uzzah, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God's perfect love casts out the fear of wrath and eternal punishment. And the fear that lingers on then for us as Christians is that pious fear that Luther extols. This pious fear could basically be described as letting God be God, trusting him for all of our life, including the things that we think we're doing that are good. This pious fear goes hand in hand with faith. And so for our culture, which has repeated and retweeted FDR's famous words to try to tell us to eradicate all fear entirely from our lives so that we could live a life worth living is wrong. We see in scripture here a different picture. A properly placed fear is what will free us from all other lesser fears as we live out this life of faith. Again, this constructive fear of the Lord will throw all of our potential idols to the ground. There are so many things, so many idols that we face each day. The fears that could totally paralyze us reveal them for what they are. We're afraid of stupid things like weight gain, but we're also afraid of social stigma, real economic failure, Aging, and really the fear of aging is fear of death, the last fear. And we're even afraid of good things to be afraid of. We're afraid of the harm that would happen to our loved ones. And yet even were that to happen, we would know that God is good and God is Lord over all. Real things that could cause us to fear are still even lesser fears. They're fears that reveal our priorities for what they are. But when we fear the Lord above all else, we gain perspective. If God extends his mercy to us, and he does, and Jesus Christ, make no mistake about that, then what else is there to fear, really? Fearing God above all other things actually looks like the kind of fearless confidence that FDR was trying to generate. We can't have this fearless confidence unless God gives it to us, unless we're trusting in him, unless we have that proper fear of him, and only he can give that to us. And so with that in mind, let's pray to him now and ask for it. We know, Lord, that there is nothing to fear except for you. You alone are worthy of our awe, of our fear, of our worship. And so we ask, give us a healthy and holy fear of you, to see you as you really are in all your holiness and majesty. And we also ask for the courage to see ourselves as we really are in all of our proud sinfulness. Allow this holy fear of you to reorder our lives and to release us from the horrible fear of lesser things. Free us then to be able to serve you boldly, trusting you to do the good works through us. And we ask this for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.